Hi. Hello. Um, hi, I'm James Bridal. That's me. Um, I, was, I was just thinking we had to start. And um, I'm a former publisher as well as other things. And so I, I bristle when I heard someone being rude about Johannes Gutenberg uh, just now. Uh, and I, I wanted to, I can't help myself, I'm sorry. I have to say, Gutenberg printed lots of books. Uh, he didn't just print the Bible. One of the books, one of the books that we definitely can uh, ascribe to him um, is a book by Aeolus Donatus, who is a kind of fourth century Roman uh, grammarian. He's the person who gave us the terms by which we describe drama, prostasis, epistasis, and catastrophe, the three stages of the drama. Uh, and I mention that because I'm here to talk about the third stage. But I'll start by, start here, which is one of the places I start telling this story. These are some pages from um, a book called Weather Prediction by Mathematical Calculus by a guy called Lewis Fry Richardson. Uh, Richardson was a meteorologist. He was studying in Scotland before the war, and he had this crazy idea that if you gathered enough meteorological information about the world, you might be able to predict what the weather would do in the future. And so he gathered up all this data, and he spent years doing it. And then the First World War happened. Uh, and Richardson was a Quaker, so he was a pacifist. So when he was called up to fight, he actually joined an ambulance unit and spent the war ferrying wounded soldiers back and forth behind the lines. And while he did that, he worked on this mathematical theory of his. And he took all of this data that he collected, and he applied it to a massive map of Europe. He looked at the data for just one day. And with pencil and paper, he did all of the calculations necessary to work out what it was that the weather would do. And he did it. He performed the first mathematical forecast of the weather. The thing is, it took him about eight months, because he was doing it with pencil and paper, often under shell fire, or lying on kind of wet hay miles behind the trenches of the First World War. But he proved the method. And he published this book after the war, and, uh, and his theories are the ones that we still use to predict the weather today. Uh, they hold true, or they've held true pretty much up until now, which is that you divide the world into ever more uh, smaller, discrete units. You process those units mathematically, and you extend that thinking into the future. Richardson thought this was brilliant. He, he, this is his kind of life's work. He also thought it would never really come to much because of the work involved. He was working when computers were still people. Uh, he believed that it really would be a dream that this could ever be fully achieved. But this, this dream was realized. Um, it was realized for the first time properly in about 1950 uh, with this computer program. This is, a, this is an early computer program written for what's pretty much the first computer, the ENIAC. Uh, this computer was built uh, during the Second World War in the US. It's the first programmable computer. And this is the program they used to do exactly the same thing. They took Richardson's method, they divided up the world, in this case North America, into smaller and smaller units, and they did this mathematical calculation on it to push that forward. Once again, it actually took a little while. Uh, it took about three weeks for them to do this. But when they went through the logbooks and they looked up everything that had been in there, they realized that actually the entire running time of the computation had been 23 and a half hours, right? They'd beaten time itself. 
they'd run the computer faster than the world itself was operating. This, this to me is a moment when we break through into something else, when computation becomes, becomes really what it is as we know it today, which is a model for predicting the world, for creating a model of it that we can run separate from the world in order essentially to assume this kind of control and mastery over it. This is, this is the ENIAC, uh, for real, which is kind of one of my favorite computers, um, uh, I think. Uh, as you'll notice, the ENIAC was a, was a huge machine. Uh, it was, in fact, like the size of a, a couple of rooms. Um, and, and what's extraordinary about the ENIAC is um, it's, it's still present around us all the time. The guy who built it, primary designer, a guy called John von Neumann, defined the architecture of all the computers that we still use today. The computer you have in your pocket is still a von Neumann machine. We run according to the same logic. There was a guy called Harry Reid who worked on this, on this machine, who was one of the engineers on it. And in his memoirs, he wrote that the ENIAC was a, a, a curiously personal computer. Right? Now we think of personal computers as something that we carry around with us. But the ENIAC was a personal computer because you lived inside it. Right? But the thing is, the computer didn't really shrink. Right? It didn't really actually get smaller. It expanded. Until now, the, the, the computational system is something that we all live inside, that spreads over the entire surface of the planet. It even extends up into space on satellites. So we're all living within this computational system, and we're all living within that same logic of modeling and prediction and control. It's, a, it's something that I think of as, as what I call computational thinking. That logic of being able to model and predict the world perfectly has settled right into our brains. So we see the world as something that can be computed in that way. Everything is reducible to data, supposedly, and anything that's not reducible to data falls out of view and kind of isn't calculated at all. And this, of course, is the guiding, guiding principle of computational thinking, which I'm sure many of you will recognize as, as Moore's law, right? the accelerating number of transistors available on computer chips. This was originally formulated um, back in the 1950s by uh, George Moore, who worked for for um, IBM, um, uh, sorry, for Intel, um, and has held true ever since. He thought it would last about 10 years. Right? He, sa he said that the computing power will double every two years. And it's held true, in fact, ever since. This line has continued to go up and to the right. And as a result, it's become more than just a kind of a rule of thumb. It's become a law, and not just a technological law, but a kind of moral law. Uh, it's become a law that we believe in. Uh, it's become a kind of faith that this will always continue in this trajectory, and we will always be given more computing power with which to digest the world. But it's turning out that this isn't really working in quite the way that we expected. This is um, a different graph that goes in another direction. This is uh, what um, people who work in uh, the biological sciences have started to call Arum's law, which is Moore's law backwards. This is a graph of spending on pharmaceutical research against the number of drugs that are actually discovered. Uh, the discovery rate in the pharmacological sciences is actually dropping off. And one of the reasons that's proposed for this within the literature is the way in which we think about discovery itself. Now, 
Most of us, if we think about kind of chemistry and drug discovery and how that form of science works, even though we probably think it's ridiculous, we still picture a bunch of people in white coats in a laboratory kind of tinkering with glassware. But if you go to a science lab today, you'll see that it's primarily computers. It looks like a cross between a data center and a kind of car factory, robotic arms moving samples around, vast amounts of data being pre uh, processed. This is what scientific exploration looks like today because the process of discovery and thinking itself has been reduced to a, symptom, uh, a process of modeling and prediction in the same way. The idea that we can produce more understanding of the world by the gathering of data alone and by, even by the making available of all that information as widely as possible is in fact starting to fail. And it's failing in multiple ways. And one of the worst things about it is that we're kind of pretending not to notice. And we can see this in the very things that we set out to, uh, to predict in the first place. This is another graph that goes up and to the right, and really not in a good way at all. This is the Keeling curve. Um, it's uh, the observations of CO2 levels as recorded since 1960 at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. I'm sure you've seen this graph in many, many places many times before. It hasn't stopped being true yet. Uh, two years ago, we passed through 400 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, the thing is, this is measured at the top of a volcano. Um, one of the things that's lesser known about CO2, one thing it does is it traps heat in the Earth's atmosphere so that the Earth is getting hotter. The other thing is it makes us dumber. At higher levels of CO2, your cognitive ability starts to drop. Inside poorly ventilated buildings, CO2 levels regularly exceed 1,000 parts per million and 1,000 parts per million adult cognitive capacity drops by up to 20%. So we should start to think about opening up some windows. What I said about the weather getting hard to predict, harder to predict is entirely true. This is from another, I hesitate to say, favorite paper of mine. This is measurements of turbulence over the North Atlantic from, um, as measured uh, by flights commercial flights. What's happening is, as CO2 rises and the Earth warms, the atmosphere starts to change. It starts to become less predictable. It becomes more turbulent. Different temperatures of air buff it up against each other. One of the symptoms of this is bumpier and bumpier flights. One of the other ones is that our horizon of predictability is starting to come back towards us. Over the last 100 years, we've managed to predict the weather out to about 10, 12 days with very good accuracy. That horizon is starting to come back towards us again. The world is, in fact, becoming less knowable as a result, as a direct result, of our attempts to know it through computational means. And this environmental collapse is, measured, excuse me, is mirrored in a kind of cognitive collapse that's, again, for me, entirely clearly produced by the same kind of symptoms. Uh, one, one that I think about often is what park rangers in the US have termed death by GPS. This is the process by which people will follow the shining line on their um, GPS device screens into places that they can't come back from. Deaths recorded in 
uh, Death Valley have risen in past years primarily because people keep on following the directions their car gives them even as it becomes drier and darker and the road starts to give out. And unfortunately, this isn't a problem just of kind of education and, um, or straight-up engineering because it's not just kind of, I don't know, for want of a better term, stupid people who do this. It's something that's built into our, into our psychology, uh, into our neurology. Um, it's a term that psychologists have called automation bias. Right? Um, automation bias is the part of our brain that accepts the results of technology as truer than our own intuition. The canonical study of this in the literature is done on pilots, highly, highly trained people who are placed in simulators uh, and put through simulated emergencies. These people have tens, if not hundreds, of flight hours of experience. They're incredibly good at what they do. They know what they should do in any circumstance. And yet, in the midst of one of these simulations, if they're given a different suggestion by an automated piece of technology like an autopilot, they'll follow it instantly, 90% of the time. Our brains, it turns out, are kind of lazy, uh, and they'll take any kind of technological hack that we offer them. As a result, we have to be very, very careful what technological hacks we place on offer. But in fact, what we're doing is architecting a world where technology removes so many of those choices or even opportunities to make choices away from us. This is um, the interior of an Amazon data center, an architecture that I think represents this particularly well. It's a very weird thing about the way uh, Amazon, sorry, not data center, um, distribution center works. This is real stuff in here. The thing is, if you were to go in here, you wouldn't be able to find anything. And the reason for that is Amazon uses something called chaotic storage inside its warehouses, because it's super inefficient if you need to go and get a book and a DVD and a cleaning product from three miles down the, down the path. So what in instead they do is they arrange this all, all this stuff as efficiently as possible, as designed by a machine for what's likely to be bought together. The result, of course, is this makes no sense whatsoever to human beings. Uh, one outcome of that is the people who work in this warehouse wear often wrist-mounted devices that tell them where to go from point A to point B. The other result, of course, is su of such automated systems is that those systems track the workers. They can tell how long they're working for. Uh, they can tell when they take toilet breaks. Uh, they can tell um, if they stop and talk to their colleagues about the possibility of unionizing. Choices in this system are removed at every possible level. This is what happens when that choice removal system and pure direction and pure optimization of people's choices is applied to the most vulnerable. This is the recommendation loop of how you go within 12 completely automatic video recommendations from a child's nursery rhyme to um, essentially Mickey Mouse porn. Uh, this is a process that's occurring on YouTube right now to very small children. Uh, I've written about this extensively. If it creeps you out, look up something is wrong on the internet because something really is very wrong on the internet. The systems that we've put in place are automating some very, very strange behaviors uh, that are not the things that we necessarily want to be placed, certainly, in front of very small children. But while people get easily exercised about the dangers of exploiting the 
decision-making plans of very small children, we seem to recognize less when it's being done to us at a higher level. This is a video on YouTube from 1980 of Walter Cronkite talking uh, very clearly and sensibly about climate change. Um, and this is what YouTube recommends you should follow up from watching that with. YouTube's been shown over and over again to basically have a bias towards um, extreme and radicalizing content. There's now good literature on the subject that people are effectively becoming politically radicalized by algorithmic choices online. Not just on YouTube and other ones as well, but YouTube's a particularly good example of this. Um, what happens is you basically have an algorithm watching how everyone behaves, trying to maximize those people for profit, right? To get them to watch longer and longer. Think if it was managing traffic. Uh, and it wanted to do whatever it thought people should do um, uh, when driving. And what it did was, instead, it notices that people slow down when there's a car crash, right? And pay attention. So it thinks, oh, brilliant, people love car crashes. And so it starts to produce more car crashes to feed that need. That is precisely what is happening, not just within our entertainment systems uh, and these supposed you know, um, leisure systems, but within our society as a whole. Because the algorithm is just a kind of simple story that's being told to us about the state of the world. Right? But these simple stories are becoming intensely, intensely damaging. There are a series of hacks on our cognition. Uh, there are a way of reassuring people that everything's OK when everything really, really isn't. The world is filled with a kind of unknowable complexity. People say that the, the world seems more and more complicated today. I don't think that's the case. I think the world has always been incredibly complex and fascinating with it, right? But it's been hard to see. We've spent the last 100 years building technologies to bring that complexity right up into our faces, and it's scaring the hell out of everybody. Because things that you don't know, things that you don't understand, are fundamentally destabilizing. And what we do instead is we become afraid and we become fearful of, of change and difference. When, excuse me, I'm getting incredibly dry. Um, this, this undermining of the self that occurs when the full complexity of the world is presented to us is to my mind what's producing vast amounts of the uncertainty, violence that's present in the world today. This is a direct result of being told for 100 years that more and more information about the world will lead us to greater understanding rather than greater care and greater solidarity with one another. The belief that aggregations of information alone will save us is inhibiting our ability to move forward politically and socially. In part, this is due to this ever-widening gap between information and agency. I want to stress the point that I just made, this paradox right, between the incredible availability of information today and the way in which uh, our, our societies actually seem to be becoming uh, less and less rational, uh, less and less careful of one another. The tools that we need to change this are ones we still haven't fully developed yet. Um, I've written about extensively about the problems of this. I'm increasingly trying to think about what it is that we need to do instead. 
The first stage of this is quite obviously vastly more and better education around particularly technological subjects. I happen to believe that technology is a way of thinking our way through these problems if we regard computers as tools for understanding the world rather than tools for telling us how it works, as tools for asking questions of it rather than giving us the answers. We need to learn to cooperate in better ways with the technological systems that are being built all around us. This is my favorite example of that. This is from um, uh, 1997, when Kasparov is defeated by Deep Blue, uh, a moment in which it felt for a moment like the machines were starting to take over. What happened, in fact, is Kasparov came back the next year with a thing called Centaur Chess, a new way of playing chess that involved humans and computer teams working together as a, as a pair. Something extraordinary occurred in this moment. Until this moment, computer and man had been placed in a kind of opposition in this game. What happened in advanced chess is it was discovered that when a human used a computer, they were capable of defeating even the greatest supercomputer. There's something that happens when humans and machines think together rather than one trying to use the other that actually produces entirely new and more hopeful outcomes. And finally, we need to shift where the power resides in these networks. This is the famous network diagram of Paul Baran in 1964, one of the foundational documents of the internet. And the thing is, we never got beyond B, right? We have a system now where small entities still control most of the power and most of the knowledge around technology. Uh, ways of distributing this power are essential in the present moment. And they revolve radical, radical thinking about the way in which we build things, who we build them for, and particularly who builds them. This has been a very brief <laughs> overview of a number of very large-scale concerns about the nature of technology. Um, I'm not myself anti-technology. Um, I'm not even, in fact, that pessimistic. What I am quite certain is that very, very radical change is coming down the line very, very quickly that's going to require very, very radical change from us. And when I say us, I really, really mean all of us. So I ask you, please, consider it is what you're building, who you're building it for, who it helps and who it advises, and perhaps start to think about how we can share that knowledge and power a little more widely. Thank you very much.